Hey everyone, I'm Sally Abed, and this is Groundwork, a podcast about Palestinians and Israelis refusing to accept the status quo and working to change it. Groundwork is a joint production of New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace. Welcome back to our 101 series, Ground Report, where I sit down with activists to have a conversation about who they are, what motivates them, and what kind of future they imagine for the region. We will be back with our regular Groundwork programming in two weeks. My guest today is Robbie Damlin. She's from an organization that gets talked about a lot during this time of the year, around Israeli Memorial Day. The organization is called the Parents Circle, Families Forum. It's a joint Israeli-Palestinian organization that includes over 600 bereaved families, all of whom have lost an immediate family member to the conflict. They believe reconciliation, reckoning with one another's pain, must be part of any sustainable, peaceful outcome in this region. I interviewed Robbie just hours before their biggest annual event, the Joint Memorial, which they host in Israel every year. It's done in partnership with the NGO Combatants for Peace and also supported by the New Israel Fund, one of this show's sponsors. This was the event's 18th year, and like every year, it is highly controversial. Israel's defense minister announced that Palestinian participants would not be allowed to enter Israel and share their stories. This year, he cited the, quote, complex security situation in the West Bank. Just one day before the event, Israel's High Court of Justice ruled that the minister's decision was unjustified and struck it down. It cited a previous ruling that noted, quote, the ceremony is how hundreds of bereaved families remember their loved ones and precisely represents the other future that is possible here, a joint and optimistic future. More than 15,000 people attended. You can find a recording in the episode notes. In my conversation with Robbie, we don't get into the event details though. Instead, we hear her personal story of loss and her journey to find reconciliation. This is Ground Report with me, Sally Abed, and this week's guest, Robbie Danlin. Let's start with your origin story. If you could give us one experience that really led you to the path that you're doing today. I was born in South Africa, so I didn't need much encouragement. I mean, growing up in the anti-apartheid movement. But my first social justice activity was when I was five. That's a hell of a long time ago. I stole a horse because the guy used to deliver the milk. It was with horse and cart in those days. And he used to beat the horse, and I'm a big animal lover. So I got my friend Barbara Fudge involved, and the two of us went off to the dairy with carrots, and we stole the horse. And we brought it home to my house, and we put it in the tennis court. And then my father came home, and you can imagine finding a horse in the tennis court. He wasn't overjoyed. So, uh, and I got sent to boarding school very shortly after that. But actually, if you think about it, That's an act of social justice, because I couldn't bear cruelty to animals. Your story of the horse is just heartbreaking to me, yeah. because I, I, I do think that a lot of the people on the ground that are doing the, the courageous work that you do 
have that very, very strong sense of justice from very early on, and it applies to everything. And my question is, how did you get to where you are today in terms of also joint Jewish-Arab struggle? Coming to Israel, I had no intention of staying How old were you? I was like 20, and it was the six-day war. I mean, in the newspaper, the headline said, there's going to be a war in Israel. So suddenly the causes barely... I'd never been to any um, Jewish activities or anything like that. I mean, I went to a British boarding school, and after that to a convent, because I was so naughty, they threw me out of the the British boarding school. Oh, I'm telling you all these terrible things. I love that. (laughs) Constantly challenging the system. Yes. It's obvious that that was part of who I It's part of who I am still. Mm-hmm. You don't change. You know, you, you have those basic need to protect the weaker and need not to take orders. It's very difficult to, to be my boss. And when I heard about the Six-Day War, suddenly, you know, the big hero has to come and save Israel. And I landed up, like, being in a kibbutz and, you know, with 30 other South Africans who'd never done a stroke of work in their lives because I grew up with five servants and a swimming pool and a tennis court, and that's how it was. The first job they gave me was in the laundry. I had to iron. I'd never ironed in my life. <laughs> I burned five or six shirts. I remember on the kibbutz, it was when the war was over. I mean, the war was over before I even got here because it was so quick. I remember saying, wow, what an opportunity this is to give back all those territories. We can make peace like that. And wouldn't that be extraordinary? But of course, who the hell was I to tell people who'd been living under this danger of being exterminated? And along comes this lady to tell them what they should be doing. That was wrong. You know, it might have been the right answer, but it shouldn't have come from me. I got married and had two little boys. Then it was time for Iran, my oldest son, to go to the army. And I remember standing at the bus stop and thinking to myself, this is not possible. You know, how can this child, and my child is carrying, going to carry a gun after the way they were brought up with such liberal, open opinions. How can this be? And that was difficult, but there was only a year and a month difference between Iran and David. Ah, your son, David, okay. So then David had to go to the army, and I didn't have a clue what they were doing. You know, they certainly wouldn't tell me anything. They made up the biggest load of rubbish, and they thought I would believe them, you know, about what they were doing. And then I remember one day, we were having lunch, and we had a lot of wine, and they started to tell me it was the time of the Intifada, of the uprising, how distressed they were with what they had to do. And these two huge guys, one meter 93, each of them, with tears pouring down their face and thinking to myself, what do we do to our children? Anyway, they both finished the army and then one went to India and the other to South America, as so many soldiers do after the army to run away to just be free of this terrible conflict. 
And they came back and started to study, and David went to Tel Aviv University, and he was studying for his master's in the philosophy of education. And uh, he was teaching at a pre-army course, philosophy. Actually, the last picture that I have of him is him dressed in a toga, and uh, they had a huge feast with Plato. And then he got called to go to reserves, as all kids do. And he was really in a dilemma because it was the first time that he was serving in reserves in the occupied territories. And he didn't know what to do. And he had, he was part of the peace movement and he signed the letter that the officers signed to say that they wouldn't serve in the occupied territories. And he came to talk to me and he said, look, I don't know what to do. If I don't go, what will happen to my students? Because his students were going to be inducted into the army. Is that the right example? But if I do go, then I will treat people with dignity and so will all my soldiers. Because he was the officer and I, I was filled with a sense of dread. And off he went. I was terrified. And then he called me on a Saturday and he said that they were like sitting ducks. And the last thing he said is, I love you, you know, and... He was killed by a Palestinian sniper with nine other people. And then everything changes, the whole priority of your life is different. And then I realized, because about three years after he was killed by a Palestinian sniper, what he was talking about when he said he would treat people with dignity. I went to give a talk at the American embassy and there was a Palestinian in the audience and he kept looking at me. And he said, look, I just want to tell you that the day before your son was killed, I drove through the checkpoint and he stopped me and he said, look, I have to check your papers. I'll do it as fast as I can. I'm sorry. And they got into a huge conversation. The Palestinian said to me, and the next day when I heard your son was killed, I was so sorry. Here's the message of the parent circle. It's knowing the, the humanity of the other. If you don't recognize the humanity in the person who's your so-called enemy, how can you ever solve this conflict? And this is one of the, the biggest problems that we have. Do you think, and I don't expect if you have an answer to that really, but do you have like a moment where you realize that your pain needs to be navigated towards building hope and strengthening the struggle? You know, I'm writing my memoirs now and a lot of these stories are coming up because I'm looking to explain to people how you can become a victor, not a victim. I'm a survivor, but I'm not a survivor. I don't like that word. It's not a positive word. But I think victor is a very positive word. How does that uh, translate in your actions? I started to look for something that I could do this work, you know, to prevent other mothers. Both Palestinian and Israeli, I knew from the beginning that without a partner, there's, no, there's never going to be any kind of solution. 
I don't talk too much about peace because it's a big word, but I do talk about reconciliation and respect. And so um, the people from the parent circle heard me talking at this demonstration, came to see me and invited me to a weekend in East Jerusalem with other bereaved parents. And I remember sitting around the table and looking into the eyes of the Palestinian women and recognizing, you know, that we share the same pain. And that's actually the basis. Because if we can stand on a stage and talk in the same voice for the same message, then for goodness sake, isn't that an example to other people? I mean, we paid the highest price. A Palestinian mother and me standing on the stage, or a Palestinian father and me, whatever it is, the pain is the pain, it's the same. It doesn't matter if you're a South African mother, if you are from America. I met many of the black mothers in America who'd lost children, and mothers of policemen who'd lost children, and there's no need even for a bridge because we knew each other immediately because of the shared pain. After that, I closed my office and started to travel all over the world and spoke in Congress and the House of Lords, you name it, and in hip hop concerts, wherever anybody would listen. And then when I came back one night, there was another knock on my door. I opened the door and there were three soldiers and I thought, uh-uh. I slammed the door in their face. I can't lose another child. That will be the end of me. But they kept knocking and knocking. And when I opened the door, eventually, they came to tell me that they caught the man who killed David, thinking I would be delighted and dance around with joy. But of course, that was the most difficult thing because now there's a face. Now do I really mean what I'm saying? You know, it's all very well when there was no face. I could go around the world talking about, I don't know, reconciliation and non-violence. And, uh, and do I mean it? Uh, that's not easy. And what happened there? So then I didn't sleep for three months, literally. I was walking up and down my house thinking, I can't do this work. It's not in integrity if I do, if I'm not willing to walk the talk. So I wrote a letter to the family of, of Thaya, that's the name of the man who killed David, um, telling them about the parents' circle, that we're more than 600 families who've all lost an immediate family member to the conflict. And that really, in the long run, what we want, you know, the vision is to create a framework for a reconciliation process to be an integral part of any political future peace agreement because we've signed papers on the White House, you know, and without that framework of reconciliation, all you can hope for in a political agreement will be for a ceasefire until the next time. Mm -hmm. I also told them that we needed to meet because we owed it to our children and grandchildren. You can imagine they were pretty surprised <laughs> to get a letter from the mother of somebody their son had killed took three years, and then the letter came of uh, uh, Ma'an, mm. which is the most, I think, important media outlet probably for Palestinians. Thaya wrote me a letter saying that I'm crazy. I knew I was crazy before that anyway, so he didn't have to tell me, and that I should stay away from his parents, and that he killed 10 people to free Palestine. But you see, and this is part of reconciliation, is understanding why. 
I knew that when he was a very small child, he saw his uncle violently killed by the Israeli army. And then he lost two uncles in the second uprising. It's a cycle. Um, I think that was revenge. I'm not sure that there was any political motivation, although today um, he's a big political hero, you know, because he's a hero. They made a film of him, they made a book of him, and, and um, it was quite an extraordinary letter because what it was was a catalyst for me to say, okay, now I can, I've done what I needed to do. I can go on with the work. So we made a documentary in South Africa about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and I sort of was looking to understand what forgiving means, you know, what's the meaning. And then I came back and I thought I want to meet Thaya, it's time, and I got permission from Tsipi Livni and um, I asked for Basama Ramin, who's one of the members of our group who I love. I mean, this is above the conflict. There's nothing to do with the conflict. He's family now. Mm-hmm. Um, to be the go-between, because you can't just appear in the jail. You know, you need somebody in restorative practice. And what better person than Basam, who lost his daughter, who spent seven years in jail, who speaks Arabic. I mean, that's the ideal mitigator between the two of us. And um, we were waiting for the police, and then there were elections, and I presume the general public would know that we have a lot of elections, and each time we got a worse minister of justice. And I didn't, I thought it couldn't get worse, but it seems it has. And of course, they're never going to let me go into the jail. And it's okay now, you know, it's not a burning desire anymore, which it was at some point. Describe to me the change that you envision to see. A lot of people get confused and think that the work that we do is only with bereaved people. Mm. It's not. We're not a therapy group or anything like that. What we are is a group that can work with the general public and in the main, even people who don't agree with us, once you tell your story, you make an emotional breakthrough. And it doesn't mean they will become Martin Luther King. But something happens, you know, if you go into an average Israeli classroom with a Palestinian, you ask them, who of you ever met a Palestinian? Nobody, or maybe one. I'm talking about not buying hummus somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, who of you speak Arabic? Maybe one in the class, because granny came from Iraq. You know, and who's been overseas? 90% of the class. So there's no connection. They've never met each other. They have no idea. I promise you that even in the classrooms, airplane. Oh, airplane. Okay. I grew up to these sounds. You know, I I grew up in the north on the Lebanese borders. So this is um, this is my lullaby. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it. So airplane. these kids. Um, it's the first opportunity they ever had to meet a Palestinian who tells his story in a way they come all the way from the West Bank, they get up at four o'clock in the morning to come through the indignities of a checkpoint, to come to their classroom, to be vulnerable, to open and tell their story of, of transformation, which is very impactful. And then it's happened quite often that, you know, the Palestinians come through a checkpoint and suddenly the soldier says, well, I met you in my classroom. 
So the work that we're doing is really based on telling stories, telling your personal story. Once you do that, even the hardest of hearts can't, can't be left not affected. Change really starts with a story. And I think uh, that's the kind of story that you're telling. And I always ask people, like, take me into one day. It's a hard exercise. Wake up, you're waking up, and you see the change that you want to see, that you're working towards. If people don't have any hope, and we know that a very huge percentage of the Palestinians don't have hope, mm -hmm. what are these kids, why are they becoming violent? Because they don't see another solution. And, um, you know, for me, an ideal world would be that everybody could get up in the morning, go to work, not listen to the news, which is an absolute... Or maybe the news would actually well, be good the by then. Well, the weather is going to be, or something like that. And that you could just live a normal life. Nobody needs anything more. I think that everybody wants just to get up in the morning, just to get to work, just to know that their children are safe. Is that so much to ask? How long must we wait? How many more people will die? How many more graves will there be in the cemeteries of Palestine and Israel? How many? When I remember when David was killed, there was like one row of in the section that he was buried. He was buried under like this beautiful tree. But now there are rows and rows and rows after. For what? Did that achieve peace? Did anybody's life become better from that? No. People just got more and more destroyed. And now all the politicians tell us, you know, that we gave our children for a greater cause. It's my child. I didn't give it to the country. Ruby, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We will be back with our regular program in two weeks, so please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We need your help. If you found what you just heard meaningful, if you think this kind of reporting is important, then please take a few seconds right now and rate us and give us a review on whatever platform you're using to listen. It will go a long way to help us get the word out. Groundwork is created and produced by Dina Kraft and Yoshi Fields. The Ground Report is reported by me, Sally Abed, with content and audio editing by Yoshi. Yoshi also scored the piece. Additional content editing by Elisheva Goldberg and Nick Acosta. Art and design by Nick Acosta. The show is a joint production of New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace. New Israel Fund is the premier funder and organizer of progressive Israeli civil society with over $300 million from tens of thousands of people to hundreds of organizations working for change on the ground for over 40 years. The Alliance for Middle East Peace is the largest and fastest growing network of Palestinian and Israeli peace builders. You can learn more about them in their website in nif.org and almap.org. And you can learn more about our show at their websites or at groundworkpodcast.com. Our theme music is by System Ali, a multilingual binational hip-hop group whose cultural activity is deeply rooted in the communities where they work. 
Additional music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Until next time, shukran al-mutaba'a.